Welcome to another episode of the Dentology podcast where we discuss the business of dentistry. In this podcast series we'll be discussing all the non-clinical aspects of dentistry from goodwill values, finance, marketing, how to buy and sell a dental practice mindset through to where you can invest your money in team management issues. My name is Andy Acton and I'm joined by my co-host Chris Strevens. Let's jump straight into it. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dentology, the Business of Dentistry podcast. And this morning we're joined by David Brewer, the Managing Director of FTA Finance. How are you, David? I'm very well, Andy. Thank you. Good to see you both. Yeah, good morning, David. And this morning, David's going to be talking to us about um, all things involved with buying a dental practice. David's our finance guru. He's the UK finance guru for dentists looking to arrange finance. So it's going to be a really, really interesting chat to see where we go and, and the things that dentists can learn if they're looking to arrange finance. Just to start, David, could you perhaps just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background? It'd be quite useful to, to know that. Of course, yeah, no problems at all. Um, I my, my background is banking uh, primarily. I was 24 years at one of the uh, one of the major high street banks. Uh, the last 12 of those years, I was a specialist uh, healthcare manager, where primarily I was arranging finance for dentists uh, to buy dental practices. Um, I left the bank in 20, uh, 2010, so best part of 11 years ago. 11 years ago now. Um, I'm, I'm more or less doing the same role. Um, I'm now director of FTA Finance, and my role is to help dentists buy dental practices. So very much what I did at the bank. So best part of 20 years experience of working with dentists of all shapes and sizes, and probably have helped over 2,000 dentists over the past 20 years set up in practice. I reckon you might be the one who's done the most dental lending for anyone, actually. If you think with that history, David, I'd have thought you probably the most experienced financer of dental practices in the yeah, UK. Just before we get into things, David, something occurred to me. So you left the bank in 2010, which was coming out the back of the last recession, which kind of hit the UK towards the end of 2008. So what's your comparison like between that recession of 2008, 2009 and, and in part into 2010 and the COVID pandemic? How did, how did they compare and how did it affect dentistry and what was the availability of funds and how did banks react differently across those those two issues? Yeah, the response is actually quite different. Uh, back in, what, 2009, 2010, um, it was grim. Um, the banks more or less closed their wallets. Um, we went from the best part of 10 banks lending to the profession down to one or two. And even those one or two were very stringent in terms of what they would make available. Wow. Um, this time around, uh, very different. Um, obviously, we've not quite come out of the pandemic yet. And following the initial shutdown, uh, so March to June last year, which did affect dental practices with the vast majority of them having to close, um, most reopened immediately in June. And most have bounced back very, very well and actually are trading above pre-pandemic levels. The beauty is the banks know this and they know how safe and secure the dental profession has been historically. And they are really pleased at how quickly they bounce back. So this time around, there has been no change to the lending stance. Uh, the banks are still lending. Um, the pricing is still reasonable. So... I would like to think we're in a very different position now to where we were back in 2009, 2010. So no major policy changes, David? 
There have been some tweaks and some changes. A couple of banks made knee-jerk reactions middle of last year, mm-hmm. uh, so June to October. A couple of the banks did change their lending stance, but they've now gone back to more or less to where they were pre-pandemic. Has anyone left the market? Um, as a result of the pandemic, no. Um, there were a couple of banks that had pulled out of the market before the pandemic struck. Mm-hmm. Um, with the banks, it is hot luck in terms of the managers you go to. Um, the beauty with dental lending and healthcare lending, it isn't credit scored. So it mm. comes down to an individual interpretation of both the bank manager and in turn the lending underwriter. So I, I know I can put the same proposal to two managers at the same bank and get a completely different decision. Now, so managers really, managers really important. Oh goodness gracious! Uh, the the individual manager and the individual relationship is key. Um, you know, rest assured, we know the people to go to and the banks to go to uh, for a customer to arrange this off their own back. Um, for them, it really is potluck. So, so, so on that point, David, if if I'm thinking of buying a dental practice, where do I start? What 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 do I do? What's the chronology? How, how do I approach it? In terms of starting, um, right at the very, very beginning, talk to your family. You know, before you go anywhere near a bank or come anywhere near me, talk to your family and friends. Um, not everybody is cut out for practice ownership. Oh, I and thought talk to your family and friends for the money. I thought yeah, you were talking about right. yeah, yeah. money, not, not making sure you're the right sort of person. <laughs> bank of mum and dad, yes, please. Low interest rates. Never Absolutely. Pay it back. Bank of mum and dad does come into play quite often. So, uh, yes, certainly speak to them on that side. But also, they hopefully will be the most truthful in terms of your managerial experience, capacity, and actually your ability to take over a business. That's because not advice. everybody is cut out for it. That's good advice. Um. Leading on from that, obviously, assuming family give you the thumbs up, um, compile a wish list. You know, what would be your perfect practice? And I'd normally suggest 10 items on that list. Uh, location, normally top of the list. So, you know, where do you want that practice to be? How big do you want that practice to be? So how many surgeries? Are you looking for NHS, private, mixed? Um, any particular specialisms? How many staff are you looking for? So, come up with what would be your desired practice. So when you ultimately register with agents and start getting details of businesses coming through, you can compare those to your wish list. And that that wish list, I, I guess people can be quite broad in their range of, of what they want. Is there, I guess location is, is, is top of the tree and critical, but is there a point at which when you work down that wish list, you kind of have to stop and say it's good enough is there a danger that you're looking for this ideal practice that just might not be out there? Yeah, the the ideal practice is out there, but the ideal practice is what everybody wants to buy. So the ideal <laughs> practice is likely to be quite expensive. It comes down to supply and demand. Um, the word I always use, it, it's not a very nice word, but if, if you want to practice at a reasonable price and to get on that ladder, it's compromise. You may need to compromise with your wish list. You may need to compromise on the location. You may need to compromise on the size of the practice. 
It's so the same as house buying, really, where people say, I want to buy a five-bed house in yep. this road. And the answer is there's not a five-bed house in this road, but there could well be a four-bed house that you might be able to extend and do something with. So, yeah, so so don't be quite so bullet-focused, maybe. Um, consider yeah. your options and what you will compromise yeah. on. Yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a case of being flexible. And whilst you know, the practice you end up buying may not be your perfect practice now, you will ultimately turn it into your perfect practice over the years. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I guess within that, that shopping list, that wish list of things that are practice, um, the size, the number of surgeries is going to come into play. I guess when you start building your profile, that's going to come up with a, a typical practice that's going to have uh, an average value attributed to it. So then it comes down to the borrowing. So how much can a dentist borrow? You know, how much do they need by way of a deposit? What, do, what does that look like at the moment? The response to that is it varies um, and, it, and, and it depends. It depends on your circumstances. It depends on the bank in question. Um, I still see a lot of quite misleading adverts out there talking about 100% finance. And obviously for most first-time buyers, people see 100% and they think that the bank's going to lend them absolutely everything with no commitment or contribution. It is very, very rare for a bank to lend 100%. Um, So in most cases, you would need to budget for a cash contribution. Um, I would suggest somewhere between 10 and 20% of the goodwill figure. That's good to know. Mm -hmm. Um, Freehold is different. If if the premises are free, if the practice is is in freehold premises, you may well get 100% finance on that element. Oh, wow. But for goodwill, budget between 10 and 20% cash there may be a few ways around that if you've got a fairly healthy property portfolio with quite sizable equity right. within the respective properties. The cash contribution may come down and property comes in as additional contribution. Right. So that's, that's so that added security or possibly if you've got another practice, is, is that where people start talking about 100% finance when there's yeah. other assets in the background? Uh, correct. And for me, that isn't technically 100% finance because you're still putting something towards the purchase, not necessarily cash, right. but a physical asset, be it property or maybe an existing practice that you own already. And, and for people listening to this, David, I, I assume we're just saying then that all banks have different policies for percentages so some people would only lend 30 percent or 10 percent is that right so you end up with the the yet again you've got a different bank with a different policy that might have a different deposit and a different interest Mm. rate so don't just think that all banks are the same you're 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 spot on um we currently have 14 high street banks or names that you would recognize 14 14 one four that we can name 14 banks I, I could go through the list, but it will become quite boring on this. But, it, <laughs> but the, in addition to those 14, there are smaller niche providers who, who are now starting to pop up uh, as well. Probably not quite there for the really big purchases, but maybe for smaller purchases, they're now starting to come into play. Wow. Now, as you say, all of these banks are different. They're, they all look for different types of purchaser. They all want different types of contribution, different types of experience as well. And just to add to the fun, their, their criteria is ever-changing because they're constantly flexing their criteria. And as I indicated earlier, you go to the, you go to the same bank with two different people at that bank, 
you're going to get different decisions, which is where the role of the broker, this is where I really come into play. We know the banks to approach who you would fit their criteria quite neatly. We know the managers to approach. And most importantly, we know how to approach them. Mm. We will be compiling business plans, forecasts to really make it as easy as possible for that bank to say yes. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I'm not a great mathematician. I'm quite good with numbers, but not, not a mathematician. But it would be interesting if you worked out the probability of rocking up to one bank with one manager and getting a really good deal. You know, when you look at, as you were saying, there's 14 banks, there's differing credit policies, there's mm. differing managers within those banks to actually end up and going, oh, I've hit a right star here is probably pretty rare, I'd have thought. And the danger then, I suppose, is you end up either getting rejected, not because the deal was bad, but because the bank won't lend to it, or you end up overpaying, I suppose, David. I mean, have you seen that where people have ended up paying more than they should have done because they didn't necessarily go to the right person? Yeah, well, I've, I've got two two examples I, I, I could use there. One is uh, an associate, a first-time buyer, who a- approached us along the lines of, look, I want to buy a practice, but I don't think I can. Um, he'd spent the last three years looking and offering on businesses, but he kept going back to his own bank. And his own bank was saying no, no, no to every proposal he put forward. So he never got any further forward. I got. I received the details from this particular customer, and I couldn't see the problem. You know, it's a relatively straightforward applicant. And the next practice he looked at, I got him to send me the details, and within 24 hours, we had a bank offer for him. God, I feel the, the, the problem wasn't him or was the, the practice. Bank. The problem was the bank. But the problem is, if you don't know, if you don't know that, and you then trust the individual. And they're giving you an answer based on the policy of the bank they work for. They're not. They're not lying. They're telling the truth. They can't do it. But that doesn't mean the deal's not doable. It just means for that manager in that bank, it's not doable. But I guess you found a bank that was more than willing to do that business. Oh well, we, we had we had two or three banks that would lend on it. And this this poor this poor purchaser, this poor associate, had put his life on hold for three years. Yes, he'd lost opportunities for three years. Yeah, because he didn't fit the lending criteria of the bank that he went to, but that bank wouldn't tell him that. All they would say is, no, not this practice. Very sad, very sad. Um, Second example as well of customers who have come to us, um, yeah, they could go to their own bank, they could strike lucky, they could get it approved. But the banks, bear in mind they're a business, and the task of the bank manager is normally to get the best return for the bank. So quite often, if they go direct, the terms and rates of interest are quite high. Now, we know what the average pricing should be. We also know how far we can potentially push a bank and a bank manager on the pricing. And we we do the the negotiating. And we've had cases where customers have got terms, but the terms were at 5 or 6% over base. And we managed to secure terms at 2.75 over. Wow, um, that's, a huge, that's a massive amount over a long-term loan, isn't it? Oh, I mean, that's just it, like ridiculous. Yeah, I think on this case, the difference was it was about twenty thousand pound a year in what? terms of additional costs. What, what in loan repayments? Twenty thousand pound a year in saving. Wow, and multiply that by the length of the loan again. Yeah. Quite an extreme example. Oh, yeah, but sure, but it makes it's a real life point, though, doesn't it? Because even at a a smaller local level, you still could be talking hundreds of pounds a month being being saved. Yeah. Wow. 
That's a that's a huge difference because not only does that improve how much money you've got to spend, you know, personally, but also it reduces mm. the term of your indebtedness, doesn't it? You know, if you sort of turn that into instead of a fifteen year loan, it then becomes a a twelve year loan or whatever. That's a mm. massive change. You were saying, David, about the way you approach banks and, and the way that you go about it. Uh, do you find there are a number of people who would try to arrange a loan themselves? Uh, it not go well and then come to you and if you do have those people does, does that make your job significantly more difficult than it would be because i'm just thinking if, if a loan's already been declined trying to then get that flips to an approval is, is that challenging and can it be done um it's a challenge um once a bank and a credit underwriter has made a lending decision it is very difficult to overturn that decision, even if you go back with more compelling evidence, a more detailed business plan, forecast cash flow, uh, just because the bank and the lender in question doesn't like to be seen to be backtracking. Well, yeah. So my mantra is get it right first time. Get it right first time. And you know, even if you are doing it yourself, make sure you go to the bank prepared. Because if you go to the bank without all of the background information without forecasts, without a detailed business plan, at best you're likely to be, you know, at best you're going to get poor terms, but more likely it's going to be rejected. Well, what so, are your sort of submissions on your percentage of success when you put something up? What's that sort of turn into? Um, yeah, it's, it's good and it's consistent. Um, we know that when we put a case forward, the vast majority of times it's going to be agreed. Um, 94% of the proposals that we submit to the banks are approved. So it's 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 a high percentage and that's how we, we pride ourselves on that stat. Um, of the 6% that we don't get, it's normally because uh, our dear customer hasn't declared certain bits of information. Right. Um, that's where it that's where it does fall down slightly, but 94% of what we put to the lenders will be and has been historically approved. And I suppose in reality, you, you probably don't want a 100% hit rate because the danger is that that means that you're only putting in putting through sure bets and there's going to be those ones on the fringe that, that could or could not yeah. be be approved so therefore you've got to try them i I know obviously there's the client as you're saying you know might not have told you on their credit reference or something but i I think that's that's good isn't it because actually you wouldn't really want 100 because that sort of says almost we're only going to touch dead sure deals whereas actually there probably are some that are depending on how they're presented will depend on whether they get an approval or not I agree. We, we are, and me and my team, we are masters at, uh, let's say, polishing up cases to present them in the, in, in the I most feel that was going Yeah, I was, worried, I was worried where you were going with that one, though. <laughs> um, and bizarrely, we would all, in the same case, we would also structure slightly differently depending on the lender uh, right. as well. You know, we could say, you know, we end up sometimes with two or three separate proposals, but for the same case, knowing that banks like to look at different things and like certain, you know, certain and, aspects. And typically for a deal that you put to a bank to, to arrange finance, what, what would that package comprise of? What, what, would, what would be in that package that you would present to the bank? Um, to start off with, um, I, I need to gather information. So I will be looking for information and background on the applicant. So the purchaser, so the, the basics, asset and liability profile, bank statements, how they conduct their accounts, their prior earnings. Um, The most important document from the customer, though, for me, is their CV. 
very underrated document, the CV. And in most cases, I need to get my customers to rewrite it because their CVs are wonderful clinically. Mm. But I need them to big up and expand upon their managerial experience so we can help adapt the CV into a more bank-friendly format. And I'm guessing that lots of the people that are applying for finance are currently associates looking to step into that role of principal. And are they not particularly good at at evidence in their business experience? Because in my experience, lots of associates actually do contribute to perhaps the marketing or they may deputise to the principal when they're on holiday or they, they may provide some mentoring to other people in the practice. But I don't often see them seeing that as, as as something they're doing and they get recorded anywhere is that kind of what comes over in cvs as well you're you're, you're, you're absolutely spot on when i talk about managing managerial experience to first-time buyers most of them immediately say we haven't got any but the reality is in their day-to-day job going back over the past two or three years they will have done quite a lot in terms of covering, in term, you know, if the principal is off, helping with maybe with a, with a CQC inspection, mm-hmm. possibly helping with staff interviews uh, as well. Also, a lot of the customers we deal with, the uh, family members, um, you know, be it mum, dad, brother, sister, are self-employed. They own and run their own businesses, not necessarily dental, but there is a history of business ownership within the family. And that's really important. You know, I would include that within the CV as well. Oh, that's interesting. You've got family to lean upon if needs be. So you've got experience, even though it might not be your experience, you've got a shared experience you yeah. can draw upon. Oh, that's interesting. That so interesting. on the individual side, it's it's quite comprehensive. That That is a significant part of what you're proposing to the banks is the individual. And in that case, the bit that goes with that are, is the, the proposal of the, of the target practice that's being acquired as well. Oh, indeed. Yeah, that's the next step. Uh, there's a, the applicant key, but also what are you buying? Um, and in terms of what you're buying, um, before we even go near the bank, we, we need to work out whether it is a viable proposal, uh, both in terms of the asking price and the affordability. So the first thing we would do before we go anywhere near a lender is to undertake an affordability assessment. So we would prepare a profit and loss forecast based on how our customer is going to run the business. We would build in additional costs as well and quite often the loan costs we'll need to put those in there and just to see what what money is left at the end of the day to ask the question is it worth it so on the affordability side of things you were saying that you've got a loan approval of 94 percent. so might there be some cases that you wouldn't even put forward to banks and have a very honest conversation with a prospective buyer to say look this just isn't going to work so even before it got to the banks, you you would effectively go no further because based on your experience, you just don't think that's right for them either on affordability or the skills they've got or it being too expensive or whatever the other reasons might be. Yeah, at the end of the day, our duty is to the purchaser, the customer. And truly believe hand on heart, they're going to be much worse off as a result. And also if we know hand on heart, it's not going to be approved by the banks. Yep. We will explain the reasons why to the applicant. It's quite often a very difficult discussion because they've got mm. their heart set on this particular business. That's but, a big deal, isn't it? I mean, buying yeah. a business, people, most people are only going to do that once, possibly yeah. twice in their life, and, and you're yeah. effectively saying to them, uh, no, not yet. Especially if they ticked a lot of those oh, points yeah. on David's yeah. wish list. Yeah. 
Sure. So as I say, whilst it is a difficult conversation, once we've explained the reasons why, most of the time it is accepted. Mm. And two weeks later, the customers come back with another practice that they like to purchase. Mm. Um, this again ticks all the boxes and this one's affordable so away we it's go it's a very ethically fair thing to do because what you're doing is you're you're preventing a, a potential future failure or a problem mm. or putting them in a really you know risky financial position it must help also david doesn't with the when you're submitting to the banks because they know that you've sort of done a re- very thorough almost like a pre-application before you then submit mm. it so therefore does that then, do you think, give you a sort of, I don't mean the word priority, but to a certain degree, they will review your deals because they know you've already done some pre-assessment rather than just like got a big bundle of, of uh, mm. you know, electronic papers and shove them down the, the line to? Um, yes, um, I, I would use the word priority, actually, because we've heard this from a number of the major banks to whom we refer. Um, they, they've indicated we are the biggest introducer of dental business to them. And they always remark upon the quality and the strength of the application. And that's not just from the manager, that's coming from the credit team as well. So they they are much more likely to look favorably upon a referral from our good selves just because of our track record. Hmm. And you don't want to ruin that by sending up a couple of duffers, do you? Oh, no. (laughs) no, no. Well, that's the reputation thing, isn't it? You work hard to build it. You spend years gaining it and then minutes losing it. And and also the customer's reputation as well. You know, if if we put a case forward and we know hand on heart it's not going to be approved, that's on the record against that customer at that bank. And that's the last thing we want. The customer goes back, you know, in a year's time, there would still be a record of that original application we want to avoid that. That's a really interesting point, actually, David. I never really thought about that. That's a bit like almost when someone gets a, um, you know, a county court judgment on their credit record and then wonders why they can't borrow something because <laughs> they never paid their phone bill when they moved. Mm. Or, and, and I hadn't really thought about that that fact that if you if you do it yourself and sort of make a bit of a hash of it potentially and get it declined, when you then go back again, they then look back and say, oh, it was declined before. So therefore, there's got to be something negative about it even if it was just that the submission itself was negative yeah yeah i think it was ronnie barker Mm, i think ronnie barker said you know reputation is your own currency spend it wisely which i think is lovely and it's true because and serious for ronnie barker i was gonna say (laughs) (laughs) but yeah no he uh, he used that one which was quite sweet so you've 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 assembled all the things that you need and then it and then it, it goes to the bank timeline what does that timeline look like from talking to you to getting to a stage where a loan's approved how long does that process take the first part of the process is actually quite swift um, from an initial discussion with the customer um, assuming they send me all the information i need i would expect to have an indicative or indicative bank responses within 48 hours so it's a quick response that's Um, impressive it's not credit backed at no, that no, stage, no, no. but this, these are the thoughts of the manager. These are the terms, and we go. We only go to the experienced managers. So, <laughs> nine times out of ten, we know their underwriters are going to back them up once it goes to the next stage. Right. So those, that that, that forty-eight hour window, you're saying that after that period, ninety percent of those are more than likely going to follow through, just because of the relationship you've got with those yes. experienced managers. 
So that's brilliant from a confidence point of view for a buyer. Because obviously, if you're buying a practice, mm. arranging finance is part of it, but you start incurring other costs as well. You know, yeah. you're engaging lawyers and, mm. and valuations and things. And you really want to be kind of making those payments reasonably confident that you're going to get the money for the deal to happen. Absolutely spot on. Yeah. And, and at that stage, at that early stage, we would have effectively a term sheet or probably two or three of them from the various lenders, which can be used by the buyer to show to the sales agent or to the vendor. If it's a private sale to give them the confidence that that, they, they, that they've got the backing of the bank mm-hmm. behind them. Um, after that stage, um, it's then normally normally a week before we've got the full credit back terms. We then move into the realms of valuations, which again can take another couple of weeks. Um, and when, then we hand over to lawyers where it can take a little bit longer. But realistically, from beginning to end, six months well, is a typical transaction timeline, right. which is longer than I would like it to be. Yeah. But that's average. We've got some that are three months and mm. some that are... Well, I think the thing for me, though, is you get confidence early. You yeah, get you, yeah. after 48 hours, you know, I know that would all work out. But at that point, from a finance point of view, you're well on track and, and you're more than likely going to know if you've got a bank who's going to be backing you. Oh, uh, definitely. Definitely. It's getting that offer accepted, giving them the confidence to go ahead, put put down a holding deposit, instruct the solicitors and then take it forward from there. And, and actually, I've said it a few times, the easiest part of my job is actually getting the loan agreed. Right. It's everything that happens after then yeah, yeah. Uh, between you know you shaking hands with the vendor and accepting your offer to when the loan completes in six or nine months' time. There's, I think we've worked out there are about 25 or 26 variables that could come into play mm. that could possibly disra- derail a purchase. I suppose but we, way, we know what oh. to look out for, so we keep it on track. I was going to say, I suppose in a way it's a bit like a, a complicated endo referral in a way from a, from a dentist point of view, you know, a complicated endo referral. You may well be able to do it yourself, but the chances of getting a success and a, and a, 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 comp, a, a compliment, a competent uh, one that doesn't blow up, mm-hmm. you would use an, uh, an endo specialist, but it, it yeah. does cost you a bit more money. But the circumstances are that you'll actually get a result rather than potentially a failure. Yeah. That, 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 that's, a, that's a great comparison. Um, and again, I would like to think with our involvement, we do actually speed up the process. Mm. Um, again, I know I probably annoy quite a few of the, law, uh, the, the lawyers out there because uh, we are constantly on their back. Mm. In, in, in a very polite way, I would add, in just chivying the case along, trying to find out where the delay is and you know, removing any blockages mm. to ensure the purchase progresses as smoothly as possible. But I think, and as Andy said, I think it's all, there's a positive, isn't it? The fact of, you know, if you can get a positive within 48 hours, but also if you get a negative that, that, you know, maybe not from the credit, but from you guys, it also then stops it sort of, the danger is it gathers momentum, doesn't it? And then suddenly, you know, they're, they're getting really excited. They do their own application and then the bank comes back two and a half weeks later yeah. with a with a no. It's disappointing for the buyer. It's well, probably disappointing bubble, for the seller. gets bigger yeah, and bigger. Yeah. And at some point, it's going to pop. You know, you, you get a chance to... know that. You get a chance yeah. from what you assess to actually say to someone, the honest answer, I don't think it's going to work. <laughs> yeah. Right quickly. So as you not sort of spend... Mm two and a half weeks, three weeks, getting really excited and then getting your, mm. your bubble deflated. I think it's fascinating. 
yeah. at the beginning, David, you were saying about COVID and, and we were talking about um, the comparison between a recession and COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, where does dentistry sit in terms of the bank's view of the sector? You know, is it is it a sector that they're really well disposed to and, and they're keen to lend more mm-hmm. money? Is it kind of mid-tier? I guess it's not down at the, the pubs and restaurants end of the market because <laughs> they've not had a good time. But where, where does it kind of sit on that on that line? Um, you'll be pleased to know very high. Uh, the banks quite often adopt a traffic light system, um, red, uh, red, amber and green. Um, obviously, green is go. And for most for most of the lenders, dental remains green uh, as a sector they're comfortable with, a sector where they have very, very few bad debts. Mm. And, uh, and you know, this is going back 20 or 30 years. The number of bad debts, in, if it's relates purely to dentistry is very, very low indeed when compared with other professions. Um, And as a consequence, yeah, the banks are more than happy to lend against goodwill, which they won't need for hardly any other professions. Would would you get any borrowing against goodwill? You will in dentistry. And the banks are very comfortable lending against leasehold Mm. as well. So most, a lot of the practices we see are in leasehold premises, um, 15-year lease, Again, other sectors, getting a loan against that is very difficult, but the bank would not have a problem as long as the lease is of a reasonable length. So in an ideal world, if you're buying, that lease should be 15 years because any loan is linked to the length of the lease. I presume that 15 years just means that they spread the term of the repayments over 15 years. Is that right? Uh, So so you could uh, have a shorter lease, but it just means that it reduces the amount of repayments that you get so potentially pushes your repayment cost up is that right yeah for the vast majority of the banks they will link the loan to the length of the lease so if it's a seven-year loan you know the repayments are going to be more than twice as high as if it were a 15-year lease and a 15-year loan there's one or two exceptions but the vast majority of the lenders would be looking for a lease ideally 15 years that's been really interesting there's been loads of gems in there in terms of not just um, you know what you do the how to arrange finance but for people how to approach it you know things to look out for things to do things not to do it's, it's, it's been really golden but we always finish up with with three questions we always ask people the same three questions so if you if you could meet anybody anybody you know li- living or dead who, who who would you meet if you got the opportunity I'm sure some of the people you've had on here have been quite profound. You know, I'm sure the Queen and Winston Churchill. <laughs> where this is going. Yeah, yeah, it's not going down that route. I can assure you. Is it Brian from the Hardware Store? For my sins, uh, I am an Arsenal fan, and I have been for a long, long, long while uh, through thick and thin. Uh, we're very thin at the moment. It's uh, particularly grim. But what yeah. I would like, who I'd love to meet, is living, um, and for me, is a legend. Thierry Henry. Oh, oh Thierry. By far the best player I've That's seen. Whom? Are you going to do the chant for us, David, that I am also being an Arsenal fan from the stands as we do? Or the seats now, they're not really the stands, are they? Yeah. So from uh, yeah, from North Bank days uh, to, uh, well, what, what was the North Bank equivalent at the Emirates, um, I will not be sharing the chant with you uh, <laughs> <laughs> on here. But for me, he's by far the best player I've seen in an Arsenal shirt. He is a World Cup winner. From what I've heard, a really, really nice guy. I'd just love to sit down and have a beer with him. Just oh, have really? a chat and reminisce about when we were good. 
<laughs> Hang on, let me see if he's in my phone. <laughs> and, 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 oh, no, he's not. <laughs> and, 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 and my second question is, if you could be a fly on the wall with somebody in a certain situation, who would you like to be a fly on the wall with? And I don't know if that's going to be another extension of an arsehole thing or whether you've got something different. <laughs> no, I'm, 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 I'm nothing is not predictable. No, it's an arsehole thing as well. Um, <laughs> Here we go. Well, a couple of things. One... Two, two examples. One, I would like to go back to when Arsene Wenger was there. Um, yep. I do remember a particular game at Tottenham where, where we won the league. We won the league at White Hart Lane. It was a long time ago, I must admit. And I was in the crowd that day uh, as well. It probably wasn't quite as long as someone else winning the league, though, Doc. Yeah, we may have mentioned Tottenham already, but I, I won't on here because there may be certain Tottenham fans listening. And our customers could be Tottenham fans, so I don't want to alienate them. But I would just love to know what um, Arsene Wenger was saying in that dressing room before that game, knowing that all we needed was a draw to win the league. Mm. Um, also, fast forward to now, I would also like to be on a fly in the wall with... Miguel Arteta, um, going back to the game at the weekend. Um, what on earth did he say to them to make them come out to play so damn rubbish? And <laughs> they have been for most of this year as well. We're going to have to yeah. rename this, this this podcast Talk Sport or something like that. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've, got, I've, got go. one, I've got one more question, but I'm, I'm kind of hesitant to ask it because I can feel an, an Arsenal, another Arsenal extension <laughs> coming. And the, the last question is, if you could swap any two people's jobs... Who would you swap? So, for example, you could swap, you know, Kanye West as president and turn Joe Biden into a rapper. What would you? What? what who would you swap round? That would be quite funny, wouldn't it? I'd like <laughs> to see that. But uh, um, not quite football related. Um, and this isn't. I'm going to try not to get political here, but I would love to swap the prime minister for Piers Morgan, or if not Piers Morgan, anybody in the media. Um, now, oh, this is regardless of who the Prime Minister is, I would add. I'm not, this isn't a Boris rant or anything like that. Because personally, I think at the moment, the Prime Minister, whoever they are, has got a blooming impossible job. Mm. Um, they're damned if they do, they're damned if they don't. And all they've got is the media throwing rockets at them all the time. And I'll use Piers Morgan as, as, as an example. He seems to be critical of absolutely anything he does always sniping from the sidelines and I'd love to see how good he is in that particular job yeah. um, on the plus side he does have one redeeming feature to that Piers Morgan let me guess he's, he's oh, an Arsenal oh, fan so you there we go well, I, I, I thought I'd well. squeeze the football <laughs> in at the end I think, I think life generally it's, it's easy to commentate on anything isn't it uh, when, it's the, when the decision rests with you and, and you have to live and die by those decisions I think we're all a lot more thoughtful about those decisions when you're just commentating on things. He didn't respond so well when they was put under pressure after that uh, royal interview, was he? When he no, just left. That really off, wasn't it? <laughs> Can't really do that no, as the PM. No. <laughs> yes. That's really interesting, David. Um, just quickly, how can people get in touch with you if they want to get in touch with you? What's the, what's the best way to do that? Um, a few ways are probably the easiest, honestly. If you haven't got my details already, uh, just go onto the just go onto the internet, um, ftafinance.co.uk. You'll you'll track us down on there. Um, all of our contact details are on there, um, mobile mobile number, um, landline, email address. Um, you'll also find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're everywhere. No, quite easy to find. I think if you Google David Brewer, um, 
my details will pop up. You'll also get the Lord Mayor of London as well. He also used to be called David Brewer. So don't okay. click on his details. Uh, David Brewer Dental or David Brewer Finance. You should find me. Lovely. Brilliant. Appreciate your time today, David. It's been really, really interesting. Really useful. Um, and yeah, and we'll catch up soon. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, gentlemen. Cheers, Cheers David. David. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dentology, where we discuss the business of dentistry. If you like what you heard, please do subscribe where you found this episode. That would be amazing. And also follow us on Instagram.